Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 79 of the John Riley Project. Today is Tuesday, October 8th, 2019. We are broadcasting, as we always do, from the city and the country, Poway, California. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we really thank you for joining us. If you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, I'll tell you what, you know, I've been really busy lately. In fact, I think the last time we had a solo podcast was in the first half of September. I've been largely off the radar and just kind of getting back into the swing of things. I'm like Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, man. I'm Back in the saddle again. I'm very happy to be back home. Um, you know, the fine wife and I, we just went on a two-week vacation visiting Butte, Montana, Nashville, Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, and New Orleans, Louisiana. And it was an adventure involving family history and country music and the blues and Elvis and the French Quarter and civil rights and just a lot of amazing things happening happened while we were gone for those two weeks. And I really want to share a lot of that with you. Um, and then prior to that, uh, I was up with one of my college friends, Jack, and we were visiting the old ghost town of Bodie, California, which was fantastic. And we also went to the Harrah's um, Car Museum in Reno, Nevada. We visited South Lake Tahoe. A lot of those stories I actually shared on our Facebook page, the John Riley Project Facebook page. I invite you to join us there and, and uh, you know, like us and, and join us in the conversation, but some great things on that trip. And that was like three weekends ago. So that was a while ago, but yeah, just got back from a two week trip and just catching up, getting reorganized, you know, kind of hitting the reset button. And, you know, while I was away, had, you know, it's great to have time, downtime, decompress time. You know, it's a good vacation when you forget what day it is. <laughs> My wife and I were joking about it. You know, is today Tuesday or is it Monday? Then you know you're in the zone. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of time to think about this podcast and a lot of the other things I want to get going. And I've just had a lot of really great ideas and, you know, a lot of things will be forthcoming. So really looking forward to that. Um but, you know, while I was away, uh, I was talking with our good friend, David Leland, and he was itching to come in and do a Padres season in review podcast. And we did that. You know, I flew in Friday night and we did the podcast with David on Saturday. That's been posted. I invite you to join join us and check that episode out. It was great. We went through the whole Andy Green managerial vacancy. We did a complete and thorough roster breakdown of starters, reserves, starting pitchers bullpens, depth charts. I mean, the whole thing. David is tremendous. I mean, the guy is an unbelievable uh, sports analyst, and we had a great conversation. So if you love the Padres, I invite you to check out episode 78, which we, is our most recent one prior to today. Uh, so we got we snuck that one in on Saturday. And I'll tell you what, while I was gone, there's just so much in the news right now. You know, the whole Trump impeachment. And then I found out today he's, he's not going to cooperate with the House. And so we're going to have a big face-off between Pelosi and Trump, and this is going to be great. Um, you know, while we were gone, there was conversation about whistleblowers and Greta Thunberg and climate change and, you know, a small teenage girl scolding uh, worldwide leaders, um, the GM strike, the U.S. troops leaving Syria. 
here in Poway. They they built a building on a on a bluff in the business park, and that's got residents upset. And there was a a shack in University Heights, San Diego, for rent for a thousand bucks a month. And Padres man, uh, Padres owner Ron Fowler was saying it was a terrible season. He was embarrassed. Heads are going to roll. My goodness, so much going on. And we got another Dem- Democratic debate coming up, and Andrew Yang and Tulsi have qualified. That's great news. Um, and then, uh, my, yeah, then Ellen DeGeneres and George W. Bush. I mean, there was so much to comment on, and I'm hoping to get to a lot of that over the coming weeks because it's just – you take two weeks off and it's amazing how fast the, the news cycle changes and haven't had as much opportunity to comment on them. But but really, you know, I, I just have some things that I really want to focus on in, in this episode. Well, but one big piece of news is, you know, we're working on, you know, here the John Riley Project. And like I say, this is a project all about life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And one of the things I really wanted to do was kind of have some swag, you know, some some gear, some, uh, you know, some shirts and hats and things. And I, we just made our first shirt. And so happy to share that with you here for the YouTube audience. You'll be able to see it, but it's a long sleeve t-shirt and it says right there, pursue happiness, which I think is a great shirt and uh, got the, uh, the logo there on the back, kind of small, uh, but just a, a great long sleeve, heavy duty, thick cotton t-shirt, just a great thing for the fall, a great thing on a comfortable Saturday afternoon. Um, you know, so I just thought this was a great shirt. And so I made these up and, you know, I'm going to be sharing these, obviously giving them away as gifts for our guests. Um, they're going to be giveaways for some of our big fans. Um, and then who knows, maybe I might start selling a few of these. We'll see how that goes, but let me know what you think of the shirt. I'm interested in feedback and thoughts and I just picked them up today, you know, so from MK Signs up in Poway, they uh, they do screen printing and they did a great job for me. So big kudos to our friends at MK Signs in Poway. So thanks for that. Um, but yeah, I just, this podcast, I really just want to, you know, share, you know, I want to share what, what we've been up to on this, on this time we had off. And I don't want this to be like, you know, your typical sort of vacation story, but there are so many things that happened during these two weeks while we were gone that are consistent with a lot of the things that we talk about in this podcast, culture, politics, entrepreneurism, electric vehicles, self-improvement, ancestry research. You know, we've touched on a lot of those topics, you know, over the previous 78 episodes of this podcast. So it's great that, you know, I think I can share what we experience on our trip and put it in that context. So hopefully it's really intriguing and relevant for you. So um, Butte, Montana. Okay. So you're thinking, why in the hell is Johnny going to Butte, Montana? Where is Butte, Montana? It's this old mining town in Southwest Montana. And, you know, my, my ancestry, my, my, my family, Irish immigrants, they came from Ireland and they came to Ellis Island and then they went directly to Butte, which was this huge mining operation back, you know, in that time frame between 1880 and 1920, Butte was a major city and there were mining copper and all kinds of other precious minerals there and created great economic opportunity for immigrants as they came to America. And, you know, we could go on a tangent about immigration. Um, I generally am very pro-immigration. So, you know, my family 
my family were immigrants. I'm sure your family were immigrants. So I'm all about encouraging more immigration and sure, make it legal, make legal immigration faster, easier, cheaper. That's kind of my angle. Uh, but because my family, they were immigrants and they came here and they, they settled in Butte. And I remember my grandmother would often talk warmly about her childhood in Butte, Montana. And it's, it's interesting is on my father's side of the family, um, both branches of that family tree, um, his upline all came from Butte and originally from Ireland. So um, I have four of my sets of great grandparents were buried in Butte. Um, so got a chance to really explore the area and it was great. And, you know, I've been working on this project of my ancestry and signed up with ancestry.com. And um, it's an amazing, the, the amount of information that's available on that platform. I mean, you have access to um, census records and family photographs that you can share amongst other family members, but birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, um, access to newspaper articles. I mean, it's amazing what's available. So I had done a lot of previous investigation prior to my trip. And from census data, I had locations, street addresses where my family lived. And so it was great to really visit this town that I had heard so much about in my childhood and walk in the footsteps of my ancestors. And while I'm there, I wanted to take photographs of all the homes and and create videos. And, And I had just done a trip like that about three months ago when I went back to San Francisco which is where I was born, and walked in the footsteps of my ancestors there and built a file of all of those houses, you know, primarily in Eureka Valley, the Castro District, which back in the day um, was really an Irish community. Um, so I built my file out of San Francisco, and I wanted to go to Butte and build that file. And that was really the focus of this trip. And in fact, I was going to go earlier in the summer, but my wife said, Hey, I'd love to join you. And so she had vacation time. And so we worked it out and, and we headed off to Butte and, um, it was great, you know? And, and the funny thing is, you know, I, I talk a lot about my electric car and I had thought originally, remember when I was going to go up in July alone, I thought, Hey, can I drive my electric car to Butte, Montana? Is it possible? I actually mapped it out. It's possible, but it would have been very, very difficult. I could get from San Diego to Vegas to to Salt Lake City pretty easily. But once I get north of that, um, then the the high-speed charging stations become pretty rare, and you have to be really careful. It probably would have been a lot like my trip to Albuquerque uh, back in the spring. Um, so, But since the fine wife was joining me, we decided to fly, which was a good decision. And um, you know, flew into Bozeman, Montana, which is where the Yellowstone um, Airport is, and Montana State University is there. My daughter um, had recently visited Bozeman and said, oh, you got to go check out the city. It's a lot like San Luis Obispo, where she went to college. And so we went to dinner there. And yeah, it's a lot like downtown slow, where you've got tree lined streets and brick buildings. It was gorgeous. So we had dinner there. And then after that, we drove the uh, the rental car about, you know, hour, hour and 15 minutes west um, over the continental divide and dropped into Butte. And, you know, I'll tell you, it's just fantastic scenery up there, Montana, big sky country, you know, all the things that we know about Montana. And it was just a really neat visit. And 
we dropped in, you know, in the evening. By that time, it was evening, and the city was lit up. And um, so we cruised in and got our Airbnb, and I love Airbnbs. And we were in this kind of a two-bedroom house, like a slightly larger version than a, than a shotgun shack. And it was decorated really nice, you know, and they, they had a lot of old-time appliances that they had set up as, like, tables and, and did some creative things that the dining room table was an old door with glass on top, old wooden floors that would squeak on every step. But otherwise, you know, great place. And and in the town of Butte, it was actually a decent home uh, where we stayed. Uh, so really had a great time. And then, you know, we woke up in the morning and drove around. And you really get a sense that Butte is a mining town because as you drive around uh, the community and it's up against the side of these mountains and it's been strip mined. So it's almost like the side of the mountain is like a stair step where um, a lot of this copper mining quartz and a lot of other minerals have been mined over the years. Um, So it was pretty mind blowing when we were first driving around. And the thing that you really notice is that the community it's almost, I'm not going to say it's economically depressed, but it's certainly nothing like California. And um, it just felt like the city was very worn out. It was like a city from another era. And that makes sense because, you know, really Butte, Montana was a booming city around the turn of the century, you know, around 1900. Um, but mining had declined as we got into the middle of the 20th century and automation with mining had changed. And so the economics there have been very challenging. Um, but I drove around and visited a lot of the homes where my family lived and you drive around town and it's interesting. There are a lot of Victorian homes that back in the day were very beautiful. Some of them have been kept up, but many of them haven't been kept up. Some of the homes in Butte, especially the ones on the hillside, are crumbling in many cases. Stairwells look pretty dangerous. Um, some patio covers were sort of tilting. Uh, paint jobs, it looks like they haven't been touched in decades. Um, so some of the homes in Butte were, you know, I mean, it was kind of, some of it was in disrepair. And as I went around visiting the sites of you know, where my family lived in the 1930 census or in the 1920 census, some of those homes were just no longer there. Um, they, the lot had been cleared. Um, and so, you know, I think that was indicative of, you know, it's a mining town. Sometimes the land was, you know, clear to make way for mining. In other cases, the homes just weren't maintained and were eventually condemned. Um, so, in fact, one of the houses we visited was still there, but it was all boarded up and had been abandoned. Um, so there's, it was interesting driving through Butte, again, like a walk through history, um, which was really neat, you know, kind of moving for me because that's really where two significant branches of my family tree pass through Butte uh, through multiple generations. So really got to experience that. And that was special. But you know, it's interesting, you you go to Butte. And uh, as you can imagine, the housing prices are not that expensive. Um, The median home price is $175,000. And there were, you know, just for fun, I went on Zillow, and there are homes there between 50 and 100,000. So if you want to buy a place, I mean, it's an incredibly affordable place to live. um, And there's no sales tax. Um, but, you know, the median income there, I looked it up as like 37000 um, compared to the United States average of a median household income of 53000 So, you know, it's, it's a definitely a different economy, nothing at all like San Diego for sure. 
Um, but, you know, overall, you know, we, we had a very interesting experience and the history of Butte is really a huge part of the city's identity, um, you know, because it's an old mining town and you go through downtown historic Butte and there's some really beautiful buildings there. Many of them have been restored and turned into uh, bars and restaurants and, and other things that are attractive to tourists. And, and it really shows a lot of great potential. Um, one of the things that was special in, in Butte, and we, this was the first thing we did on the first day, is we went to the, um, what do they call it, the uh, World Museum of Mining. And it was a fascinating, and they called it the World Museum of, of Mining because people from all over the world immigrated to Butte a hundred 120 years ago um, to work in those mines. You know, there were Irish immigrants and German immigrants and Italian immigrants, and they had all set up these enclaves, these ethnic neighborhoods throughout Butte. So they really took pride in being a very multi-ethnic community. Um, and so this, they had set up this uh, mining museum, and it was great because we went into one of the old abandoned mines. We went 100 feet below ground. Now, keep in mind that Back in the day, they, they were going thousands of feet underground when they were doing the real mining. But we were able to get 100 feet underground and really get a sense of flavor of what it's like working in these tunnels. And it was unbelievable. You know, we were in there with, you know, um, with hard hats and mining lamps and and learning about some of the, the mining accidents that happened and, you know, just how dangerous it is and, and how um, oxygen is so valuable and how you, know, you turn off the lights on your, on your headlamps. We did that as an experiment uh, just to replicate the, the disaster that happened. I think it was in 18, no, in 1917, I think they had a terrible fire in one of the mines. Um, we did an experiment where we were just in a, um, a bunker lit by a candle only. Uh, and there were about 15 of us on this tour and it was just flickering. And then the guide blew out the candle and it was pitch dark. I mean, you could hold your hand in front of your nose. You couldn't see yourself. So you, you get a really interesting sense of what it was like for these workers to work in the mines. And that's what the, the men in my my family tree did. Um, they worked as miners, as boiler makers in the mines. You know, that's what these men did. And it was tough living. It was hard living, but it was opportunity. It was an economic opportunity for their family to escape Ireland at the time, which was going through the whole potato famine and starvation and farming was difficult. They came here for opportunity and over multiple generations, you know, we just got incrementally better and they created that opportunity that eventually became opportunity for me. So I'm so grateful. Um, so while we were there, we also visited the Copper King Museum mansion. Um, and this was um, William Andrews Clark, who was in 1900, he was one of the richest men in the world. And he was one of the really the proprietors of the mining companies that had mined all of this copper, the copper that was used in the late 1800s when you know, electricity was just discovered and they were using copper for all the electrical lines. And so all of that came from Butte um, or a great deal of it came from Butte. And so, you know, this gentleman, William Andrews Clark, just made a tremendous amount of money. And in 1900, he had $50 million estimated of net worth. And that made him one of the richest men on the planet. Um, 
And he built this mansion in 1880, and we visited that. And it was kind of like a miniature version of going through Hearst Castle. And it was interesting. And we learned a lot more about the city and really about the economy and the mining operations while we went through that tour. And this this guy, you know, William Andrews Clark, he's the guy that named uh, for Clark County, where Las Vegas is located, because he was traveling around in various parts of the United States working on different mining operations. So did that. And then I, I spent a, like really a whole afternoon in the Butte archives, which was great. And this is a, um, a government facility where they keep all of their land records, their tax records. They have access to birth certificates, death certificates, a lot of the things I'm already getting on Ancestry.com. And we just learned a great deal. I got a lot more newspaper clippings and different stories about my family. It's this gorgeous building. It's like being in a in a library in in, in a in a um, in a law school. That's what it kind of felt like. Um, and it's just a really special place. And what was interesting is on the outside of the building there was an engravement and there was a quote in it. I think this is a great quote. And it said. Now, don't forget, Lizzie, when you get to the new world, don't stop in America. You go straight to Butte, Montana. And that's that's the whole thing is when these immigrants came from Ireland and came from other parts of the of, of Europe, when they got to Ellis Island in New York City and they entered the United States, they already knew they were already being told by family members to get to Butte, Montana. And you think about that. I mean, this is before the automobile and this is covered wagon and and horses and traveling, you know, 80 percent of the way across the United States probably took them a half a year or a full year to work their way over to Butte, Montana, uh, just so they can have an opportunity to dig a hole and work underground and mine. Um, but these families did it and they were driven and it's just special. Um, so, yeah, the mining, just a huge part of the city's history and culture. Um, we also went up to this statue called the Lady of the Rockies, and it's the fourth largest statue in the United States. And it's way up at the top of the Continental Divide um, above Butte, Montana. And it's this huge statue of the Virgin Mary. And it's lit up at night. And so we went and did a tour of that. That was pretty neat. And then I also visited some of the cemeteries where... A number of my ancestors were laid to rest and got a chance to record some videos, and I kind of build those in my file, and I share all that on Ancestry, um, kind of almost like a time capsule or a, or a Easter egg, you know? So if one of my family members becomes interested in it and they cross paths with my research, well, that information is there, and it can be shared you know, downline, you know, so it's something of a legacy that I can live, leave for my children, grandchildren and beyond. So felt really, really good while we were there. But, you know, the, t- the town itself, it, like I said, it, it, it was very kind of worn out, really clinging to the days of past, but still there's a really a lot of potential there, uh, especially with the fact that Real estate is affordable. You're in a beautiful area in the big sky country. Um, There's no sales tax. I mean, imagine if they were able to attract entrepreneurs, attract new people, new ideas. That area in Butte, Montana could be radically reformed and really could be turned into something of a better economy. Um, So I look forward to learning what some of the city leaders there are going to do. But, you know... um, I I did leave the town feeling a little sad, you know, my podcast, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, my ancestors, they were pursuing 
their own liberty, their own happiness. They were living their life and they got to Butte, Montana. And as so representative of those inalienable rights that make America great. But it just seemed like the flame of liberty or actually the flame of pursuit of happiness seems to be dimming there. So I'm really rooting for Butte to make a comeback. Uh, But I'll tell you what, Montana is just gorgeous, really a beautiful place. Um, And, you know, we, we left on a Wednesday and then like a couple of days later, it was national news. There was a blizzard that had entered Montana in the last week of September. So um, it it was something. But, you know, um, we we had a great time there. And as a matter of fact, we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary while we were in Butte. And there's some really nice restaurants. And we just had a special time there. So for me, it was very meaningful. You know, it was a really special place. It was definitely a bucket list place for me. And I was really glad we went. So then um, we worked our way over to Nashville. And this whole idea of this Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans came from one of my buddies that I used to work with back in the 1990s. And he's about maybe 15, 20 years older than me. And he and his um, his wife had done this trip where they flew into he, – he started in New Orleans. He flew into New Orleans, spent the you know time there, then rented a car and drove to Memphis, spent time there, and then drove to Nashville and then flew home. And I had always had that in the back of my mind. I go, that would be a really cool vacation. And it just lined up for us really nicely. So we ended up going to Nashville, and we were going to do this. We were going to go in the opposite direction of my friend. And it turned out to be great. I mean, we um, – I'll tell you what, Nashville, if you've never been, this city is booming. This city is just economically vibrant. There's a lot of construction going on, a lot of tourism, a lot of people moving into the community. I mean, it's just tremendous. Um, We stayed at another Airbnb in an area called Sylvan Park, which is this really nice um, residential community in Nashville. And we had this great place in what had happened is these people had like kind of an old kind of Southern home, um, you know, with the big Greek columns that you kind of see on some plantations, but it was in a more suburban area. And then in the back of their property where they had their garage above it, they had converted that attic into an Airbnb. And so it was perfect. We had a place to ourselves. Um, We were separate, you know, separated from the main house. And it was just fantastic. All the modern amenities. It was beautifully done. Uh, It was just like like a five-star hotel room. It was that nice. Um, Just loved it. Um, So, and it was great. In Sylvan Park, we were able to walk, you know, to bars and restaurants, which is pretty difficult to do here in Poway. Um, so that we really enjoyed it. And um, it was a funny story. We we had woken up one morning and we're driving there a rental car. It was like this, I can't remember what the, it was a Buick. I can't remember the model, but it was like a one of those small SUVs. You know, it's like a car version of an SUV. Um, so four doors and a hatch in the back. And um, it was silver and I kind of knew the car pretty well. And so then we were, we got our breakfast and we had walked back to our car and I got in and my wife's over at the passenger door waiting for me to unlock the door. And I'm like looking inside the car and I'm trying to figure out where to unlock the door along the, like the door handle area. And I'm like, this seems weird. It's not quite right. And suddenly I 
you know, my wife was telling me, she goes, this isn't our car. I had like climbed into someone else's car. Um, and yeah, sure enough, on the passenger side, there was like bags and paperwork, you know, all scattered about. I don't know what the heck I was thinking. I was just disoriented, new city, new car, the whole thing. But I'm surprised someone didn't see us and get we didn't get in trouble. So immediately we jumped out of that and found our rental car, which was right next to it, drove away. We had the giggles for like 30 minutes. Um, but that was fun. And so we made our way downtown to Nashville to that Broadway area. We were there like at 11 in the morning. And man, that place was rocking at 11 a.m. All the nightclubs are full. They got live music and it's just cranking. It's really loud. People are drinking. People are having a fun time. And I'm thinking, man, we just had like breakfast like an hour ago. Um, so it was something. And I'll tell you what, that downtown area in Nashville is fantastic. It's, you know, it's obviously very touristy. There's a lot of historic bars there, uh, but just to seem like live uh, music in every single venue, even at that hour. So um, it was something. It, I kind of felt it had a sort of a Vegas vibe, you know, where people were there to party. I mean, that was kind of their MO while they were there and just great energy. And we worked our way up onto a rooftop bar and, you know, took in the whole sites and that was great. But, you know, sometimes I, you know, we joke with ourselves, you know, we're getting a little old. So sometimes, you know, the loud music, especially at 11 in the morning, maybe wasn't our cup of tea at the time, but we kind of got the whole angle and we enjoyed it. We really did. Um, and then we did, which we like to do sometimes when we travel is go on one of those, um, city tour buses, you know, the, sometimes they're double decker or they're hop on, hop off. And, you know, here in San Diego of the old town trolley, well, that company has the same thing. It's called old town trolley in Nashville. And so we got on their bus and they drove us around and, you know, they have the, the guy that narrates and walks you through. And I mean, it was, it was great. And so we got to take in the whole city and there's a lot of other companies offering these kinds of tours and half of them were like, like they're, they encourage alcohol and people are boozing and, and drinking. And by this time it's like 12 noon and you're like, Oh my God. So, uh, it was just a really raucous kind of party atmosphere because when people go to Nashville, especially if they're there on Broadway, they are there to party. They're there to have a good time. Um, so we, we drove around and I'll tell you what, um, you know, as a marketing guy, I appreciate branding, and um, I really appreciate that the city of Nashville really embraces who's they, who they are as Music City. And, you know, it's evident everywhere you go, and the city has just a great brand. Um, so, you know, there are Hall of Fames for the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Musicians Hall of Fame, all these um, great venues that are there. Um, we drove down Music Row where, you know, ASCAP and BMI, you know, the companies that hold all the publishing rights to a lot of these. Um, actually, they don't hold the publishing rights. They manage the royalty payments for the publishing rights. They're headquartered there right on Music Row. A lot of these old um, homes along Music Row that have been converted into recording studios. Uh, got to check those out. And so that was really special. Um, and we, we went around town and you know, all kinds of crazy things. They have a recreation of the Greek Parthenon, you know, that's, I assume it's in Athens, you know, this huge Greek structure with the giant columns is rebuilt there in Nashville. And I guess they refer to Nashville as the, the Athens of the West, you know, so there's a lot of reconnection with, um, you know, Greek roots. 
Um, so it was neat seeing that and, and uh, you know, drove by the, the Marathon Motor Works, which is one of the original automobile manufacturers there. So it's neat, you know, so we kind of took it in, but no doubt this is Music City. And we worked our way over to the Grand Old Opry. And man, that was awesome. So we did the backstage tour at the Grand Old Opry. And we weren't sure if we were going to do Ryman Auditorium or the Grand Old Opry. And you know, Ryman Auditorium is the the venue that has all the the real legit historical roots of the Grand Old Opry. But then in the mid seventies, they they moved and created their own facility kind of outside of downtown, and we decided to go to that one to the Grand Old Opry, and it was just a great place. And again, you know, as a marketing guy, man, I just was really, really impressed with how the Grand Old Opry executed their tour and really how they emphasized the unique features of that venue, of that experience, and really what made it very, very special. Um, it was very impressive what they did. And, you know, you get into this place, it's it's like you're in a church, you know, it, it's you have reverence. There's a certain sense of awe while you're there. And, you know, interestingly, when you're in the audience, it, it is like a church because they have pews, like wooden benches with backrests, just like if you were in a church, um, which again goes back to that whole Southern culture, uh, which was really deeply, deeply woven into um, the history and the presentation of the Grand Ole Opry. It was just really cool. And so, what really made it neat is, is that, you know, you go, you go to a lot of other venues, big time music venues that are really special. Like I've been to CBGB in New York City, which is like the birthplace of punk rock. And that that's a fantastic place. Um, there's all kinds of other really special venues, um, you know, the Fillmore um, East and Fillmore West. And we can go down the list. But what made the Grand Old Opry special is they made it a, a very... Um, special experience for the artist. It was really geared for that artist. And they did little things for the artist that really turn into big things that made the artist feel very, very special about their performances in the Grand Old Opry. Um, and when the artists, you know, they come from a back entrance and it's a red carpet entrance. You know, so they're greeting them as celebrities. And it doesn't matter if they're Dolly Parton or a first timer visiting the Grand Old Opry. They enter on a red carpet. Um, there is a greeting area there where they check in. And for those that are considered members of the Grand Old Opry, which is almost like a country hall of fame in and of itself, they actually have an area where they have mailboxes where they get their fan mail. Um, so it's for these artists, it's almost like a home away from home. That's how they really make the artists feel comfortable when they visit there. Each visit is special. Um, and you get to the dressing rooms, just gorgeous, just beautiful. All these historic photos. Um, one of the dressing rooms they have set aside exclusively for first timers, you know, that are going to be nervous and they make their stay very easy, very smooth. The green rooms where the artists kind of hang out together before they go out on stage, just gorgeous. Um, and 
and they really make it, like I say, special. And I was thinking a lot about Anna Voss, and I've talked about Anna Voss before. Um, she's a Powegian. Uh, she made her Grand Old Opry debut a few months ago, and I think since then she's performed there one or two more additional times. Now, Anna Voss um, is probably in her early 20s. I imagine she's maybe 23, 24 years old. From Poway, she's the daughter of our mayor, Steve Voss, you know, the the mayor with the cowboy hat, who, by the way, is running for county supervisor in San Diego. She went to Belmont University, studied music, studied the business of music, and won a scholarship there um, from... Who was it? Not, was it Trisha Yearwood? It was someone um, like that. And one of the, the big time female country artists, she had won a scholarship and her career has taken off. And so I just was, as I was walking through all of this for my first time, I was thinking what it must have been like for Anna to walk through the Grand Old Opry for her first time uh, because it was such a special experience. And the neat thing that they do is when you work your way on stage, center stage where the microphone stand is, there's a circle there. And if that circle is like being in the the holiest of holies, you know, to kind of use a biblical reference, when you're there, that means you've really arrived as an artist. Not only are you on the ground on Opry stage, but you're center stage. And for many of them, it's for some of these artists, they have lived their whole life with that being their dream to take center stage and to step into the circle. And in fact, that circle is even part of the Grand Old Opry's logo. So again, this goes back to the branding. They do the little things so special that they become big things. And then sure enough for us as tourists, and we're doing the backstage tour, we got to stand in the, in the circle. And then there was a photographer there ready to take our picture so they could sell us the photo on the back end, which we got, you know, for sure. Um, but it was just really, really neat. Um, just, it, it was done with all the right touches. Um, so we just thought it was, it was fantastic. And you know, the, the tour itself started off, you go into a theater, a special theater, you see a presentation, and that was narrated by Garth Brooks and, and Trisha Yearwood, and, and they they went through the whole history of it and what it was like for their first time. So again, that's, again, it's all about the artist, and it was just a really a wow experience. Um, as a music fan, as a country music fan, as a marketer that appreciates really good branding, it was very special. So a great bucket list. We checked that off. We worked our way over to the Bell Mead Plantation, which was a neat place where, you know, they had raised racehorses and the the downstream of the lineage there, many of the big time Kentucky Derby winners have, have traced their roots back to this Bell Mead Plantation where they raised horses. And it was neat to walk through that tour. And that was a plantation that you know, had slaves. And then after there was a, the Emancipation Proclamation and they were freed, many of those slaves became employees. And so, you know, it was interesting to learn the history of how that um, family um, and how they kind of managed that property and how they transitioned to a different economy and the struggles they had. It was special. It was a neat place and it's beautiful. And while we were there, um, there was a wedding that was happening there on a Friday night. And so, sir, some locals there, 
their families got to experience this plantation in a very special way. It was a beautiful setting for a wedding. Great venue. So we really enjoyed that. And we did a hike around Radnor Lake, which was a really neat um, kind of walking tour around trails around this uh, man-made reservoir. So that was beautiful. Um, and uh, and then we connected with um, one of my wife's cousins who we haven't seen in like 15 years. So we got a chance to meet with her and you know, we saw her when she was a, a very young child. Uh, now she's a professional working on her master's degree, um, working to be a nurse practitioner and went out to dinner and caught up and shared family stories. So that worked out great. So I had my family experience in Butte, Montana. My, my wife, she had her family experience in Nashville. So that was really neat. Um, you know, I said earlier that the town is booming. There's 100 people a day moving into Nashville. That's how the, the economy there is just going up. And the homes were, you know, the home that we stayed in, um, you know, that grant, the total property there was worth about a million dollars. So the homes in Nashville, depending on where you are, they are not cheap uh, because it is such a hot economy right now. Uh, so it was a really neat place. Um, while we were there, we shared some photos on Facebook and a couple of my podcast uh, guests and fans commented, you know, Pete Neal, our good friend, uh, Corvette Happiness, Pete Neal, he was uh, telling me how close we were to Bowling Green, Kentucky, where the Corvette Museum is. And yeah, we were. We didn't get a chance to cross over the uh, the state line in Kentucky. And then my good friend, Brendan O'Mahony, um, was telling me how close we were to the Jack Daniels Distillery. We didn't get a chance to go there because we had to move on. And we drove to Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, a whole new experience there. And it was great. And again, we stayed at another Airbnb and just had these great experiences. Again, I'm a huge fan of Airbnb because I love the entrepreneurism. I love the way that um, homeowners can monetize their property. I love the way that we can kind of break down the cartel of these hotels and empower homeowners and empower uh, travelers to connect um, individually. Love the gig economy. And I did a whole podcast on the gig economy. So whenever I travel now, I'm always doing Airbnbs un unless they're unavailable or unless they're prohibitively expensive in, in, in certain cities. But here, Airbnb, we did the whole way through, and it was great. So we stayed in this community called Overton Park, which is kind of near the zoo. Um, but it's this beautiful tree-lined streets and these old classic homes. And we stayed in these back quarters of this house where the servants used to live back in the days of slavery. Uh, but it obviously had been redecorated, remodeled, and it was small. It was very modest, uh, but it was perfect for our stay in Memphis. Um, and, you know, the, the city of Memphis, a very historic city right there along the Mississippi River, and it definitely doesn't have the growth and the energy of Nashville, but still very cool city, a lot more special history, you know, where the history in Nashville, there's a little bit of Civil War history, a lot of country music history. Uh, Memphis history is very different, and it was neat, um, in many ways very moving. And, and speaking of that, the first place we went was the National Civil Rights Museum. This was something. Um, you know, this is this was built into the Lorraine Motel um, where Martin Luther King was assassinated. I think it was in 1968. You know, that classic picture where he's up on the second deck of a of a motel and he's up there with Jesse Jackson um, and uh 
it, it, it was it was moving. And so first just kind of arriving and seeing the the sign, which I've seen a million times um, in, in photographs, but here I was in person walking up to the hotel and seeing the place and it, you know, there was a big wreath um, on the balcony where Martin Luther King was shot. Um, and then we entered the museum and it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was obviously it was the civil rights museum, but really in many ways it was a museum walking you through the history of African-Americans from the time they left Africa till the time they came to America, the whole the whole story, like from 1619, which is the new that's been in the in the news lately. You know, like when the first slave ships arrived in Virginia since 1619, all the way through. And so, and they covered this. This museum was unbelievable. It covered you know all of slavery. I mean, all the way through it, um, and how slavery you know grew and and you know initially in tobacco farms and then in cotton and the boom of cotton in the 1800s and and the whole notion of abolitionism and the Underground Railroad and Dred Scott and John Brown and the Civil War, separate but equal, Jim Crow, the KKK. I mean, it just covered everything. Um, Rosa Parks, um, Brown versus the Board of Education, then Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the I Have a Dream speech, Selma, Malcolm X, voting rights, black power, um, Barack Obama. I mean, and I'm leaving out a million things. But you go through this museum and in every enclave, every section of this museum had these incredible films that were being presented, these displays walking you through critical times in history, maps, old photography, really sharing the struggles, the plight of those that were enslaved and all the efforts that were taken to you know, liberate them. And then once liberated, all the struggles that happened all the way down the line. I mean, you know, from abhorrent, you know, violence and death uh, to just even the struggles of just getting along in society. I mean, it was it was incredible because you read about it in the history books. And, you know, here I, I lived in California my whole life. I've never really been in the South very much. Now, here I am in Memphis, Tennessee, and more deeply getting it. Um, and you see the history all presented comprehensively. Um, and a lot of, you know, frankly, you know, the visitors in this museum, as you would expect, predominantly black, um, because for, for many of them, it's their history, their roots, when really it's our history, it's American history, it's the human history. Um, but for them, it was even more special. And then, frankly, in the South, there's just a lot more uh, black people than live in California. So you expect more there. So you can see what they were experiencing as they were going through it. And we were taking it in as well. And it was just, I mean, it was moving. And you could spend a whole day there, easy. Um, but you go to a museum and it's just so much information, so much history, so much emotion. It's exhausting. <laughs> and, and I mean that in a very respectful way because there's so much to take in. But we really enjoyed it. I mean, we really felt like, wow, that was something. Um, that was an extraordinarily moving presentation. 
especially you were there where, where Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed. I mean, this was real. I mean, it's not just something I saw in a history book. So the whole thing was just moving. Now, the other part of this that I just love is how my podcast kind of intersects with some of this um, because I talk about my podcast embracing the higher purpose of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, that goes back to the Declaration of Independence and our inalienable rights and what then goes back to really natural rights, you know, individual rights, which are really important philosophical concepts that I strongly believe in. Um, but it was really special because those same concepts were a core part of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message, particularly in the I Have a Dream speech. And there are two segments that I just really want to share uh, because it is the intersection of what what Dr. King was presenting and what I'm presenting. And we're coming at it from different angles, but we're really talking about the same thing. And this is, this is crucial. So again, I quote from Dr. King's, I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Wow. So that's that's right out of the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, right where we take the whole life, liberty and pursuit of happiness piece as well. And yeah, I mean, and what does that mean? All men are created equal. Well, it obviously doesn't mean that we're we're created with equal amounts of wealth, equal amounts of opportunity, equal amounts of physical or mental capabilities. We're all different. We all come from different backgrounds. But what it really means is from a religious perspective is that we're equal in the eyes of God. But from a political perspective, it really means we're equal in rights, that we all have the same rights. We all have the same individual rights. And in, in, in this case of liberty, and this was the whole thing that Dr. King was striving for is to have equal rights with whites and every other race. And, and, to be on the same footing from a political perspective, from a justice perspective. And he goes on in in that same speech. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And man... When I think of that, and I think of it through the lens of my perspective on inalienable rights, um, which is about, you know, we all have individual freedom. We all have a right to our own life. We have a right to manage our own life. We have a right to be free of coercion. We have a right to live our life according to our own values, to pursue our happiness, to pursue our own dreams. I believe in that very, very passionately. 
Dr. King believed in it too, but he was coming from a perspective where he wasn't given those rights, where he didn't have the same liberties. He didn't have the same ability to manage his life and his pursuit of happiness was constantly thwarted. He was constantly oppressed and the people he represented were constantly oppressed. And so you see this, this higher purpose of my podcast, but through the lens of what Martin Luther King was doing, and it made that experience for me so much more powerful as I walked through that museum. So it was something, I'll tell you what. Um, so we left there and, you know, mentally exhausted. We just took in so much, but it was really, a, I mean, I'm telling you, if you go to Memphis, Tennessee, that has to be the first place you go. Forget Graceland, forget all this other stuff. Go there. Um, the, the National Civil Rights Museum. It was unbelievable. Um, so we did that. And then, of course, after we were done, we'd had to have some Memphis barbecue. And right across the street, actually, from the Civil Rights Museum is Central Barbecue. And this place was like the real deal, like authentic Memphis barbecue. And it was good. I, I mean, I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, when we were in Nashville, the big the big uh, food item out there is hot chicken, which which is a really spicy chicken. We didn't have that. But when we were in Memphis, we had to have the barbecue. I was so pleased that a great place was right there, right across the street from the Civil Rights Museum. So we were at Central Barbecue. Um, Yeah, so that that whole thing was a day in and of itself. And then the next day we made our way to Graceland because you figure – if you're in Memphis, you got to go to Graceland, right? I mean, it's kind of cliche. Uh, so we did it. And, you know, if, for some people, this is like a Mecca. I mean, you got to go, right? I mean, it's the, the whole Elvis thing. And took that in and, um, you know, we, we walked through the house. And in some ways, it was a little bit like the the Bell Mead Plantation uh, tour in um in Nashville, but the home itself, you know, you can, it was really eclectic. It had all of this, you know, artistic um, designs and interior decoration that were big in the 60s and 70s, and some of it kind of counterculture in there. Um, the the billiards room with the the fabric on the walls and on the ceiling was just something. It was like like a you know something you'd see in the Haight Ashbury district. And and we got to the classic to the jungle room, and, and this was great because when you when you get there, they they give you like you know it's like an iPad, just kind of like this one I have in my hands here, and then they give you headphones, and so I had this this iPad with the headphones, and it would give you a narration as you're walking from room to room through Graceland. So I had that on, I got the headphones on, I got my glasses, and I had my sunglasses mounted on top of my baseball hat, and I and then all the while, I've got my phone in my hand, I'm taking pictures while I'm in there, and I had like 63 pieces of apparatus on me, and I turned around to take a picture, and my phone like flew out of my hand and went over the rail and landed in the jungle room. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. And so my wife and I looked at each other and we smiled and we're like, what are we going to do now? And I kind of tried to lean over the rail a little bit and I knew oh, this is going to be trouble because if I do lean over, there's a chance that I could tumble over almost like you see those guys going for a foul ball along the third baseline and, and when it rolls up against the rail and they flip over and land on the, um, on the warning track, I was afraid I was going to do that and then wipe out some furniture in the jungle room. And so, um, I, I was able to get one of the, um, 
you know, the attendees, you know, or the, what's the right word, you know, the people that work there and they were able to retrieve it from me. But the jungle room, you hear a million things about it. And it's got this crazy green um, shag carpet and, and this sort of wooden Hawaiian themed furniture. And it's cool. I mean, you could tell it was very retro, very late sixties, early seventies. And, uh, it was fun. So we walked through that and, um, and then, you know, we got to see, you know, his backyard and all the different things you could tell he, he and his family, it was a, really a lovely place for them. And they had a great time. And that's where he passed away. I had mistakenly thought he had passed away in Las Vegas, but he, he passed away there, um, and was buried there along with other members of his family. And, and parts of the, um, of the tour you go through and you learn about his parents and his grandparents. And, you know, he came from a very, very poor uh, upbringing in Tupelo, Mississippi. And you kind of learn the whole story. And I think for many people, you've heard it before. Um, so we went and did that. And, um, you know, the grave site was there with the eternal flame. It was just like visiting, I don't know, John F. Kennedy or something. It's like for some people, it's, he is the king. Um, so it, it was kind of, where the National Civil Rights Museum is deadly serious. Um, Graceland is serious, but a little cheeky at the same time. Um, it's a little bit, um, like I say, a little bit cliche while you're there. Um, but we you had to do it. It was kind of expensive, you know, for what it was. But you figure you're there, you got to go. And so then we later after you tour the whole grounds of the home and, and the, you know, the backyard and everything else. And he had like racquetball rooms and I mean, all this stuff. I mean, you can imagine he was just money coming out of his ears um, back in that time. Then um, we worked our way across the street to where all these museums are. And there we got to see his cars and all the outfits and the, the capes and the sequins and just a ton of stuff. It was like a, like a legit museum, uh, not just of Elvis, but of really that era. And that was really neat too. And, um, it was a little, you know, it was very much a touristy place. It was almost like a little bit like a mini amusement park. We got there. We purposely went, like we started the tour around two o'clock and, and by that time, a great number of the tourists had gone through. So it was, it was very freeing. We didn't feel like we were battling crowds or anything. And so you're over there in that museum area and there's gotta be 23,000 different gift shops over there. And so my, my wife was hunting for baby shower gifts for some of her coworkers. We got some good ones there. Um, so we picked up some neat things and just had a great time. So when we got out of there, um, we, what do we do? Maybe I'm, I might have my sequence um, out of line, but the other place that we visited, which I loved, is we went to Sun Studio or Sun Records as it was known back in the day. This, an incredibly important venue in rock and roll history, this is really where the first rock and roll record was ever recorded. This is where Elvis recorded his first song, you know, That's All Right Mama. I mean, this is where, you know, the Howlin' Wolf and Sonny Boy Williamson and B.B. King, you know, really kind of got their start in Jerry Lee Lewis and Roy Orbison and and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash. Oh, my God. And then, of course, Elvis. Um, they all passed through and did recordings at Sun Studio in the early parts of their career. What a neat place this is. And 
you know, we got a chance to go through the gift shop. We, you know, pick, I actually got a shirt there, kind of like the Pursuit Happiness shirt, a black long sleeve shirt, which I like, uh, with the Sun Studio logo on the front of it, which is great. And um, and then we walked through, and the, the tour guide there was awesome. And it was this um, young lady. She's probably in her late 20s, I'm guessing. Um, and just you could tell she had a very, very deep passion for the music, the era, everything. And that tour was powerful in the way she presented it. I mean, not powerful like National Civil Rights Museum powerful, but powerful from the perspective of she wasn't going through the motions. I mean, she really loved what she was presenting and did a great job and just share with us all these special stories. And and one of the great stories that she shared that I thought was neat was about Ike Turner. And we all know Ike Turner, you know, was married to Tina Turner and, and back in the day. And Ike Turner, by the way, you know, lived here in San Diego and he passed away in 2007 in San Marcos, California. And I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes about that. But, you know, Ike Turner, you hear the stories about, you know, how he was a domestic abuser of Tina Turner. And that, that's tragic in its own sense. But he was definitely a guy that was very, how should we say, self-confident, full of himself in a lot of different ways. And he was successful. He was a talent scout um, at the time for Sam Phillips, who owned Sun Studio. And he would go around the area trying to recruit musicians. And Sam Phillips was really driven by recording the blues. And that's why Howlin' Wolf, he said, was his biggest discovery. And and that's why, you know, all those classic blues um, artists was a big thing for him. And Ike Turner was out there looking for that talent, trying to bring it in. But at the same time, Ike Turner was also a musician. And a lot of people would always say that Little Richard invented rock and roll. Some people would say Elvis Presley invented rock and roll, but we all know Elvis didn't. I mean, a lot of things he did, he kind of you know, some would say ripped off from the black community um, or, you know, made his own. But really, that's evolution in a lot of ways. Things are made and developed and, and they evolve. But you really have to go backwards in time. And really, the first rock and roll song was by Ike Turner. And I've heard these stories about how Ike Turner would always get angry, get agitated when People would say that Elvis invented rock or Little Richard invented rock because Ike Turner would say, you know, God damn it, I invented rock and roll. And he did. And that was the whole story is that back in 1951, um, they came out with a song called Rocket 88, which was recorded at Sun Studio that now all music, music historians say that was the first rock and roll song ever recorded. And the story was, is that Ike Turner was with his band and he was the guitar player and he had written the song Rocket 88. Um, And he and the band were working their way to Sun Studio to do the recording and they only had one guitar amp and they mounted it on the top of their car and tied it down. And as they were driving, you know, the, the amplifier flew off the car and, you know, just got trashed. Um, When it landed, they brought it into the studio and they're saying, can you fix this? What can you do? And what had happened is the cone in the the speaker, which is, you know, made of like a heavy duty kind of, um, not a cardboard, but like a heavyweight paper that had torn. And so it didn't sound right to them. It wasn't that clean guitar sound. Um, And so what Sam Phillips did is he got some newspapers and he kind of crammed it in there, sort of tried to fix it. Um, But what ended up happening is that the sound was distorted. And that was the first time a distorted 
rock and roll or a distorted guitar sound was ever recorded. And that is what defined it to be the first rock and roll song ever, Rocket 88. And that song also to Ike Chagrin was attributed to... He wrote it. He wrote that song, but it was actually attributed to the singer of the band whose name I can't remember. But again, later on, historians kind of got the story right and they figured it out. So um, love that. So just these neat little things there that were special. Um, So did the Sun Studio tour while we were there. And then, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in Memphis. We, We saw the Peabody Ducks, which is like this. I don't know, kind of a tourist trap thing where this hotel trains these ducks to walk in at a certain time and walk out a certain time. So we did that. And did, we, we did a really cool riverboat tour in Memphis where we went out onto the Mississippi River. Again, had we didn't do a an Old Town Tours double-decker bus ride like we did in Nashville. We did this one on a boat in Memphis, and that was great. It was just two hours. But we went out onto the Mississippi, and we had a guy there, the longtime Memphis guy, and he told us, you know, the history, the stories. It was great. I mean, really got a sense of what that area was about, a sense of life on the Mississippi River and the early to- early parts of American history. It was great. We really enjoyed that. And then the other thing that we did while we were there is they have this big pyramid um, and in Memphis, it's crazy because you know you're in Nashville. They got the the Parthenon with the big Greek columns, but in Memphis they've got the, the pyramid and, you know, Memphis is that, that they got that name from Egypt where there's a city in Egypt called Memphis. So they have this huge glass pyramid, which I guess at one time was where the Memphis Grizzlies basketball team used to play the NBA team. And I think even the university of Memphis, the Tigers, the collegiate team played there as well. Well, they've since built them a new arena, like a legit arena. And they turned this, um, pyramid into a Bass Pro Shops and you know which is like this huge fishing and hunting sporting goods store. Now, I had never actually been in a Bass Pro Shop, but I'll tell you what, that was amazing. It was unbelievable how they they organized that from a merchandising perspective. Again, here my marketing mind is spinning. How they merchandised everything and set up these departments and again it felt like I was in Disneyland and they had real alligators in in these uh, ponds inside the pyramid in the Bass Pro Shop. It was incredible. Um, And we went in there and then we took an elevator and went to the very, very top of the pyramid and they have a, a rooftop bar up there and just the spectacular views of the Mississippi River. And that was neat as well. So, you know, what's interesting is when we were kind of getting ready for this trip, you know, there's so much hype around Nashville um, and Memphis, you know, it's you know thought of more modestly, but a lot of ways to me, Memphis was really more powerful of a visit, uh, more moving of a visit for me than Nashville was. But I love both. I love both cities. And so we did that. And then after that, we had to make our way to New Orleans. And the trip to New Orleans is like about a seven or so hour car drive. So it's like an all day trip. And so what I wanted to do to break it up is I was looking at the map and about halfway is the city of Vicksburg, Mississippi. And, you know, if you study the Civil War, the Vicksburg, that was a huge pivotal moment in the Civil War. And I thought, well, let's go check it out. And there was a national park there and they actually had where you would drive through this really large park. And it was countless 
monuments to all the different um, battalions, you know, that represented different states, you know, Illinois and Iowa and even the southern states, Tennessee, Alabama, all had their monuments where, you know, soldiers lost their lives. And, um, you know, there was a guided tour through there that we actually did, were able to dial in on a cell phone and sort of a self-guided. Now, for people that are Civil War buffs, this is a really special place. And the detail, the history, and how it's all captured and documented was really cool. Um, but it was a lot. We only wanted to stop for a while because we had to get to New Orleans. So we did... We kind of skimmed the surface of Vicksburg, kind of got some of the basics in, general understanding of it, and I wanted to get up on that one bluff. I remember seeing the photographs in the Civil War documentary by Ken Burns, which is great, where Vicksburg, in a pivotal location on the Mississippi, where the river has a, a, a bend and there's a bluff over it, and so whoever controls Vicksburg controls the passageway on the Mississippi River. Now, we were able to get up on that bluff and see the river below. Now, the river, by the way, is, has moved, and that's another thing we really learned about the Mississippi River. It's not like most rivers. Um, this is a river with a mind of its own, and it shifts, and it and it slides, and it moves around. Uh, but there, yeah, the, the river had changed direction, but we were still able to get up to that spot and get a sense of it. And yeah, it's a special strategic location during the Civil War. And it was no wonder why, you know, Grant and the and the Northern Army expended so much energy and so many lives to conquer that city. And it was a turning point in the war. So it was neat to see that. Um, and then we got to New Orleans. And uh, granted, we're on a two-week vacation. Every city we went, we were there for like about a half a week. Um, so we're on the second half of the second week rolling into New Orleans and we're getting a little tired, you know, this is a long trip and a lot of driving. And we um, stayed at an Airbnb there in the Garden District, which is, you know, you think of the French Quarter as the most popular district in New Orleans. The Garden District is, you know, on the other side of town, um, a lot of historic homes. And it was a really neat place. And we had another almost kind of a shotgun shack there, but it was a double where they're two side by side kind of reminded me of the house in Albuquerque in Breaking Bad, where Jesse and Jane lived. Um, but this was the New Orleans version of that kind of a setup where it's like two, one, one building with two side by side living areas. So we were there and it was neat. I mean, this, this home was beautifully decorated. Every Airbnb went, was, was wonderfully decorated really cared for nicely. We had the place to ourselves as we did at every one of these. And um, it was neat, but I'll tell you what, man, it was hot. And they were experiencing record temperatures for those days on the calendar. Um, and we were there the last days of September and the first, uh, no, actually it was like, we were there really the first few days of October. Um, and so, yeah, it was hot. 
It was humid. And, you know, we're tourists and we're kind of out during the day. And so, you know, it took a lot of effort <laughs> to get around uh, just because it was just so hot. And you would just be dripping through, through the whole time you were there. And we got on another one of those those tour buses, you know, the hop on, hop off and get like a nice overview of the city. And that was wonderful. And, you know, we're right there up against the Mississippi River and there are all these levees and, you know, Lake Pontchartrain on the other side of town. And it was you know, you, I remember during Katrina and they were talking about all these areas. I didn't really have a sense of it. And now being there, now I kind of get it a little bit more. Um, but, you know, we, we did the tour within the Garden District and these old, beautiful homes, which back in the day were, you know, these extremely expensive homes. Even today, they're very expensive. Um, well, we saw, like you know, a lot of celebrities live there, like Sandra Bullock and John Goodman and... Um, Beyonce, I think, has a place there, her and Jay-Z, that they spend time there. And so it was interesting to see all these celebrity homes that are there. But you could tell a lot of this old money going back many, many generations. Um, checked out Commander's Palace, which is a place that has apparently 75-cent martinis, which you'd think that would be a place that would be like lining up to get in. We didn't – we passed by it. We didn't actually spend time there. Um but there in the um, in the Garden District, we were there on Magazine Street, and, and really neat area. And it, again, reminded me of the Haight Ashbury in San Francisco, eclectic, artistic, a lot of boutiques selling clothing, um, art galleries, um, really unique, creative um, restaurants, um, some you know classic bars, some creative kind of uh, bars. It was just a neat place. Uh, very San Franciscan-like um, in that area. And we really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then we made our way eventually over to the French Quarter, and we were there during the day. And when you're in the French Quarter, you know, this is the historic, original first city of New Orleans. I felt like I was, I felt like my previous trips to Disneyland, this is where they got a lot of their influences on architecture and, um, you know, the fences and, and the way the facade buildings are built in Disneyland, you can tell they took a lot of this from the French quarter. Um, so it was neat. And, and, you know, the whole area now is very touristy. It's tourist shops and bars and restaurants, but, you know, back in the day, that was the city. Um, so got a chance to walk through there. We went to the carousel bar, which is really neat, which is literally a bar in a big circle that just spins, ever so slightly. Um, so it's like you're rotating around in this room. And if you look up above it, it it's like you're on a merry-go-round, like a carousel um, at an old-time amusement park, but it's a bar. Um, and it's it was really neat. So we got a chance to spend some time there. And then we walked down Bourbon Street. And I didn't know what to expect. You know, you have friends that have been to Bourbon Street, and you know that at nighttime, you know, it's it's all lit up and you see tons of people on the street in, in photography and videos. I wasn't sure what to expect. We were there like around one in the afternoon. And I'll tell you what, during the day, it's not as sexy as you would think it would be. It was gritty. It was dirty. Um, there were still people boozing, some drunk people yelling at each other while we were walking down Bourbon Street. Uh, but we just kind of took it in. And I'm sure at night it would have been a lot better experience. Uh, during the day, it was just like, eh, you know, you just like, okay, been there, done that. And we sort of moved on. Uh, but we at least got a chance to see it. But I'll tell you what, by this time we were tired. Uh, it had been a long trip. And 
we were kind of itching to get back home, you know, because we had been in a community in Butte where it was cooler and it was, um, and then we went to Nashville and Memphis and New Orleans where it got hotter in each location. And we were just thinking, man, San Diego and the cool breeze and the temperature in the 70s and 80s, we're thinking, man, it's going to be great when we got home. And it was great. So, but what was interesting is when we were in New Orleans and we had the rental car and we went to fill it up. And all the time we've been there, we've been seeing the news stories about how gas prices in California have been going up and up and up. And we're generally not tuned into that very much because we drive electric cars and they're powered by solar. So gas prices were like, what's that? You know, we don't really pay attention to it. Um, but it was in the news about how gas prices were over four bucks, you know, four thirty, four forty, four fifty in California. Well, in New Orleans, we filled up the car for $2 and 19 cents a gallon, like half the price. And, um, it makes you realize that in California, you know, the taxes on gas, whether it's a pump tax, a cap and trade tax, you know, the regulations that require us to have summer blend and winter blend and all these other additives added. And you got to shut down refineries so they can make the switch over. All these things add to the cost. And then, you know, the, ta- the gas tax was increased recently and the voters reaffirmed it. There was a ballot, you know, Carl DeMaio here in San Diego put it on the ballot to repeal the added gas tax. And the voters said, nope, tax us more. And so, yeah, gas prices here in California are double what they are in New Orleans. And people are always so quick to blame, oh, those greedy oil companies. Well, my friends, it's not the oil companies. I mean, well, yeah, sure. The oil companies are making money, but the state is making way more we'll say tax um, on, on, on a gallon than the, than the oil companies are making um, in profit by the gallon. I mean, it's not even close. So if you're really upset about the gas prices in California, my friends, it's the government that's doing that. It's not, the government is setting up the rules, which then distort the system. And then the corporations have to play along with that. And that results in the higher prices. Because yeah, it was half the price in New Orleans and the price was similar in Memphis and in Nashville. So yeah, it's something. Um, But you know, like I said, you know, we drive electric cars and I encourage you, get an electric car. You don't have to ever worry about gas. If environmental concerns are a big thing for you, you're driving clean. And at the same time, you know, you get all these great incentives to drive these electric cars. You get to drive on the HOV lane at no extra cost, which is great if you're driving down the 15 freeway here in North County Inland, San Diego County. Um, so many benefits to driving an electric car. Um, really encourage you to check them out if you're ever going to do it. We have a Chevy Bolt and a Hyundai Kona. The Chevy Bolt gets about 200 and I think 26 miles on a full charge. My Hyundai Kona, 258 miles on a full charge. But my driving style, because I drive like a grandma, I can get 300 or more miles out of a single charge on my Hyundai Kona. So range, never an issue. The only time we ever have issues with these is if we have to drive long distance. And I've driven my EV all the way to Albuquerque. And it was it was a challenge. Once you got west of, two, excuse me, once you got east of Tucson, it became tougher. But infrastructure's going up and that, those are gonna be a lot less tough. Um, but yeah, gas prices, that, that that's a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, so anyways, 
yeah, that was the trip. And then we came back, we got back on Friday and uh, kind of had a nice little glide path on the weekend. You know, Saturday, David Leland came over. We did that whole Padres season in review podcast, which I hope you had a chance to check out. And, um, you know, I've been working hard, you know, getting back into the swing of things. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to join in the conversation, join us on Facebook. I've been posting a lot of articles um, about a lot of these topics that we talk about, about capitalism, entrepreneurism, about electric vehicles, about um, liberty, about self-improvement, particularly in the case of the pursuit of happiness. I've been posting a lot about that, um, posting a lot about, uh, you know, Poway issues here, North County Inland, Rancho Bernardo, been posting a lot of issues around this community in San Diego, because I love where I live and I love sharing those stories. And so if you um, are interested in these topics that we talk about, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we'd love for you to join us in the conversation on Facebook. And I'm also posting a lot of this on Twitter, um, as well as in some cases on Instagram and even on LinkedIn. So really trying to grow the social media presence for this podcast, just to encourage more dialogue, uh, because I love having guests on this program. I love getting up here and just having a solo podcast and sharing with you as well. So join us on social media. And I'll tell you what, if you like what we're doing, first of all, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. If you've gotten this far, thanks a ton. But tell you what, you could really help me. The way you can help me is just share this podcast with a friend. Tell some about it. Go check out John Riley Project. Look them up on YouTube. Look them up on iTunes, on Stitcher. It's a podcast about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He talks about um, electric cars, capitalism. We talk a lot about San Diego County issues. Talk about California issues. Talk about housing. We talk about political things cultural, lots of interesting issues we get into. So please share this with a friend. Um, and, you know, hey, rate us on iTunes. If you, if you feel we deserve it, leave us a five-star rating. You can leave a one-sentence, two-sentence description. That'd be great. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe. I'm trying to grow that subscription base. Um, you know, all those things would be so helpful. So at the end of every podcast, I always leave a, with a quote. And I thought this was a good one. I had heard this quote while we were traveling and it's from Tennessee Williams and right. We were in Tennessee. We were in Nashville. We were in Memphis, but this is a quote from Tennessee Williams. And he said, America only has three cities, New York, San Francisco, and new Orleans. Everything else is Cleveland. <laughs> that was a great quote. So, you know what? I've been to San Francisco. Obviously I was born in San Francisco. I've been to New York. What a great city New York is. And now I can finally say I've been to new Orleans. I get that quote. I understand what he means. No disrespect to other cities, but those three cities are very special in their own right. They have a, just a thriving culture, a unique culture, a culture, um, a really, a go back to branding, a city that has an identity. All three of those cities have strong identities. The people that live there love those cities and they embrace them. And there's a lot of love, a lot of warmth, a lot of good energy in all three of those cities. So really happy that we had an opportunity to visit New Orleans so I can check off that box, but loved Memphis. Very powerful, very moving. Nashville, just tremendous energy. What a city that is. Uh, great country music history. And Butte, Montana, a, a city that probably most of you would never visit. A city, though, that was special for me. Um, my great-grandparents, you know, I, we all have four sets of great-grandparents. 
two of them, two of those sets were were buried there, and we got to visit their graveyard. and And you know, multiple generations of my family passed through Butte in between Ireland, County Cork, and on their way to San Francisco. Uh, so really, that was powerful for me to walk in the footsteps of my family experience what life was like in Butte, experience what life was like in the mines, really took that in. So what a great trip we had. My own pursuit of happiness, living my own life. Wow. Something. So um, thanks for sharing. uh, Thanks for letting me share this with you uh, on episode number 79 of the John Riley Project. It is no not November. It's October 8th, 2019. Thanks friends. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.